If anyone here is a parent at all, you're probably going to understand exactly this truth I'm about to give you. Actually, if you've ever, if you're a child at all, you're going to understand this truth that that I'm about to give you. If some of these things that we learn from our parents and maybe from those who brought us up, we find ourselves teaching to our own children or teaching to children who we are in charge of. They're truths that we would even teach to children who aren't even ours. They're that important. Like, you know, don't run in the street, right? If you saw, you saw a child running in the street that wasn't even yours, you'd go out and stop them, right? You'd try and teach that lesson. Um, you know, don't play with matches, right? You know, what, what about, you know, don't pull hair. Uh, you know, don't talk back to your parents. Don't draw on the walls. You know, don't run with scissors. You know, we'll just teach kids these things. Don't call names. One of the most important, especially when it comes to large crowds and teaching about safety, is don't talk to strangers, right? You remember that? You remember hearing that as a child? You remember maybe teaching that to somebody else at one point? We've all grown up with this lesson. And... Maybe, maybe it's a time where, where we're in a big group or we know, don't talk to strangers. You only talk to maybe somebody in uniform who could help us get home if we're lost, something like that, right? But as adults, we've learned that talking to strangers can actually have a benefit to it. You know, we, we talk to people we don't know and, and we build friendships with people. Maybe, uh, maybe we can help them in their lives and maybe they can become somebody who can help us in ours but we never know that unless we are actually talking to strangers at times what makes it difficult in our world is that sometimes that lesson from our childhood overtakes us in that time when we really need to be talking to strangers and we hear in the back of our mind don't talk to strangers and we might see somebody that could use our help, but I'm just not going to talk to strangers. It's not my area. Sometimes it can come into play when we need to talk to strangers because Christ has put a stranger right in front of us and wants us to talk to a total stranger about Jesus. One of our greatest mentors in the Bible who's talked to strangers at any given moment is the Apostle Paul. Paul would go anywhere, everywhere that he walked, he was talking to strangers about Jesus. People knew that if he was coming, he was going to be talking about Jesus. And, and he did it so much, he was beaten and he was thrown in jail and he was beaten some more, but he would not stop. Everywhere he went, he's telling strangers about Jesus. He would talk to people he hadn't even met in, in different areas. And sometimes he would talk to them face to face. And sometimes, rather, he would actually write letters to them. And he'd send them to churches that he'd never been to. People who he'd never met. Maybe he just heard about. And he was giving them instructions on their faith. He would tell them, this is what you need to believe about Christ. This is the Christ. Some of them he would be actually teaching and, and training and, and encouraging and exhorting and explaining our walk with Christ. Paul's going to give us some of this great direction this morning through the inspired word of God. Because as people of faith, as people who have come and, and, and know Jesus, we're going to find this lesson that Paul is giving us 
that really teaches us and it tells us now what can I do to make Jesus happy? A lot of pastors will tell you it's it's pretty common when maybe you're maybe you're at the altar with somebody who's coming to Christ and, and you and you pray a prayer and you've got their your arm around them and it's an exciting moment because somebody has just come into the family of Jesus but it's not too far after that 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 person is going to say okay well what what what's next what what do I what do I do now and Paul is going to give us this great instruction on what we can do in our lives how we live to please Christ if you'll open your Bibles with me this morning we're going to be in the first chapter of the book of Colossians we're going to be reading verses 9 through 12 in a message that I have titled walking worthy of the Lord now there are many great passages in this book but today we want to look at what it is that Paul is praying to God about when he's talking to God about the church in Colossae. When Paul hits his knees, he prays for people all over the world, people who he's talked to in many different places. But specifically, he's asking that God will give the church the knowledge of God's will so that they may walk worthy of the Lord and fully pleasing to him. That's where we want to focus this morning, is what does it take to be fully pleasing to the Lord? I want to give you just a small amount of history on this book before, before we dive in. Paul is writing this letter essentially to a church in a town called Colossae. And when Paul is writing this, he's in prison in Rome. See, years before, Paul had been in a town called Ephesus. And he was there about three years. And he taught, he, he, he had a church, and he, he was preaching there. And there were men who learned underneath him. And one of the men who learned from Paul was a gentleman by the name of Epaphras. And Epaphras took the message of Jesus a short distance to his home in Colossae and started a church and started teaching about Jesus in Colossae. What we have here is a letter that Paul is writing to that church after he has received word from Epaphras that this this church is thriving, that this church has come to Christ, that they know who Jesus is. And Paul is writing and saying, he says to the church, I want you to know that the gospel that you heard from Epaphras is a true gospel because I taught it to Epaphras. He learned that from me. And in this letter, Paul gives this church in Colossae, and by extension gives it to us, this timeless truth about how to live the Christian life in a way that makes Jesus smile. We all have a pretty good grasp on what not to do in our Christian life. We could probably write a list a mile long of the things we're not supposed to do as Christians, right? But if I were to sit down and ask you, will you please write me a list a mile long of things that we are supposed to do as Christians? Sometimes that could be a little bit more difficult. Fortunately, Paul actually gives us a great list right here. And it applies to all of our lives, not just the church in Colossae thousands of years ago. It actually applies to you and I today. I want you to read with me, if you will, in Colossians, where in chapter 1, verse number 9... And Paul writes, 
For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We pray this in order that you might live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. Now, real quick, I'm going to stop right there. If you're reading in a new, uh, new international version, you're going to notice an English punctuation mark. It's called a colon. It's just two dots. That tells us that we're going into a list. Okay? If you're not in an NIV, the list is still there. Don't worry about it. It's just how, how the translators use the English punctuation mark. But we're about to enter into a list. And this list is a, a great list that Paul gives to us. Read with me in Colossians verse number one, or chapter 1, verse number 10. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, colon, here's the first in the list, bearing fruit in every good work. Here's the principle. Living a life that is pleasing to Jesus means that we need to bear fruit. When we talk about bearing fruit in our day, sometimes we have a difficult time actually expressing what that is. Some say bearing fruit is is doing good deeds. Some might say bearing fruit is helping out a neighbor. It might be having a lot of kids. It might be a full quiver. Some might say that bearing fruit just means being a good example. But I want you to look at this, what Paul states here in this again. It's, there's a before and after in this phrase, and it's amazing what one little word changes the perspective of this particular passage. Look at this with me. Look at it again, what Paul writes. He says, bearing fruit in every good work. Or some translations might say bearing fruit with every good work. What it's telling us is that good works are not bearing fruit. They're two separate things. Now, now bearing fruit can be a result of good works, but good works is not necessarily bearing fruit. One, one Bible scholar actually said, and, and stay with me here just a minute, he said that fruit is the visible expression of power working inwardly and invisibly, the character of the fruit being evidence of the character of the power that's producing it. That's saying fruit on a tree, a pear coming off of a pear tree, it represents a pear because that's what, kind of a, that's what kind of a tree it is. A Christian fruit that is representing Jesus is coming from Jesus, right? That's the power that is producing it. We can do good works by going out and helping our neighbor. Or we can do good works by maybe helping out with a meal here. And we can come to the park and hand out a meal. And, and I think it, it's, it's great what we're doing. And everyone knows that Pastor Jim comes here and he does good works and he bears fruit, right? This ministry is bearing fruit. It's not only just good works. Because you see on Thursdays, right, it's a meal and a message, right? And there's a point. And that's to bear fruit. It's a message of hope that's being brought here every single week. I've caught myself at times when I've gone across the street recently to a neighbor's house who was doing some, doing some, some work. And he was putting up a garage door. And I'm not a construction guy at all. But I can kind of lift things and I can use that drill to drill things into the wall and stuff, Right. And so I was over there for a few hours and, and, and was drilling things in the wall and holding things up and, and putting up this thing that goes like this. And, 
After a few hours, you push the button and it goes, and, and then you push it again, and it goes down. And I did a great work, but after we sat around and for a quick second or two, you know what I did? I went home. I just went home. I did a good Christian work, but I did absolutely nothing to bear fruit. I should have been talking to my neighbor about Jesus. You don't have to turn there, but in Mark chapter 4, Jesus is teaching this parable of a, of a farmer who is throwing some seed out and trying here. Of course, you're throwing seed because you want to grow something, right? But if you can remember, this farmer was throwing seed out on, and there's some seed that landed on the path, right? And the birds came and they ate it right off that path. You know what Jesus said? He says, this is what it's like when people hear the gospel for the very first time, but Satan just comes and takes it away right away means you heard it, but you didn't hear it again and again and again. And Satan came in and told you, hey, that's wrong. And you just turn your head really quick and you walk away. There was more seed that was tossed out. And it fell in the rocky areas. And the, the plant came up, but it had no root. And so it died off really quickly in the sun. And, and Jesus said, this is, these are Christians who are just naked and they fall quickly when trouble or persecution comes. Because they have no root and they have no armor. The farmer's throwing some more seed and some it, it lands among the thorns and the thorns just come and they choke it out. And this is interesting. What Jesus says, he says, these are people who hear, hear the gospel and they really get it. They understand it. But life, lies, wealth, everything that goes on outside here where we've got to live in, it just gets in the way and it choked it out. And still some, it lands on good soil and it produces a crop 30, 60, and 100 times what was thrown. Because crops need three things. They need soil, water, and sun to grow. Somebody could be throwing good works, but not every good work is going to produce and bear fruit. You and I, we've had those seeds planted in our hearts before. And then somebody came along and watered those seeds that had been planted in our hearts. And, and we've seen those seeds grow. But each one of us has been given seeds in our hand. And it might be that Jesus is saying, that stranger is who I want you to give that seed to. I want you to take this and go and plant it. And whether I'm going to use you to water it or somebody else, that's your job is to plant this seed. It's an expression that says we can see how many seeds, we can cut open an apple and see how many seeds are in the apple, but it's not until we plant one seed that we can see how many apples are in each seed. Because you plant it and that neighbor that, that you're needing to talk to can grow and can go and plant a hundred more that may not have ever got planted if you didn't even plant that one single seed. And as we put our works into practice of, of bearing fruit and increasing the amount of good works that we're doing in, 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 with the purpose of bearing fruit, we are also growing in what we know about God. Follow me back to Colossians chapter 1 in verse number 10. It says, We pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, colon, bearing fruit with every good work, comma, and growing in the knowledge of God. 
I want to stop here for just a quick second. Here's a principle. Living a life pleasing to Jesus means that we need to continue to learn who Christ is. It's this idea that's deeper than simply reading our Bible, which we need to start out with. It's this, it's this idea of this total comprehension of knowing God. There's some people who, who could live into their 60s and 70s, and everything they learned about God, they learned in Sunday school. Everything they learned were traits. It was, it was book work that they learned, and they took with them through their own life, but they never connected, they never became any closer to God. That's where the Christian experience comes in. And that's what Paul is talking about. He's telling the church in Colossae, and he's telling us that we need to be growing in our knowledge of God. If we stop learning, then we've stopped growing. Paul didn't say that the goal is to reach full growth. He said the goal is to continue growing. It's the principle of getting to know God better through this Christian experience, to know these traits, but to know them personally, that God is great, that God is personal, that God is mighty, that God simply is, and that he's, he's infinite in relation to time, and that God is powerful and morally pure, and, and he is holy and righteous and just and genuine, and that he is mercy and persistent, and that God has allergies, that He's allergic to sin. That, that one came from my seven-year-old. She, she <laughs> made sure she had, she says, Dad, I have a joke and I want to tell you. And so it made it into this morning's sermon. But Paul is praying for us to live this life that is pleasing to Jesus, that, and that we take time to not simply read about him, but to interact with him in our lives through these traits. I'll tell you, if you ask any of my high school teachers, they will tell you that I am the one person in school that had the least amount of interest or knowledge of a gentleman by the name of William Shakespeare. Bill and I never got along very well. Honestly, it wasn't until recently I couldn't tell you if he was a writer, if he was a songwriter, a painter, a sculptor. I, didn't I, I was no good with anything Shakespeare. But I'll tell you, if you were to put me in a room with everything that Shakespeare either painted or wrote or sculpted or did whatever he did if you put me in there with her in a room for six weeks and a and a bunch of coffee i'll come out on the other side of six weeks and i'll tell you i'll quote you everything that i can i'll i'll, I'll tell you where he lived what his mom's name was the color of his favorite mule the size of his hat his shoe size I'll tell you anything that i can find about him but is that really knowing him or is that just knowing about him Paul's telling us that he wants us to spend time with God and learn more about him. This letter to Colossae is written to Christians. They know who God is. They, they've, there's a good Jewish influence in this town. They understand. Paul's saying, I want you to spend time with, with God. Other New Testament writers in the second uh, book that Peter penned, it's chapter 318 Peter says now grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in Ephesians Paul is writing and and he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope of which he called you to see that having the eyes of your heart enlightened only God can enlighten the eyes of your heart. 
When you're connected in a relationship with God, you can tell people what he's done for you in your life. You can tell them exactly from your experience that God is powerful and this is why I know because he did this for me that God is merciful and this is how I know because he did this for me that God is love that God is mighty and you can tell them God is persistent because he did not leave me alone for years he followed me around and I came God never stopped and that's a story you can tell because you have that relationship with him. To grow in the knowledge of God is to continually increase our understanding of who God is. It starts with, yes, our daily intake of the Bible. It's like nutrition. It's, it's like health food for your soul. But reading leads to needing, and needing leads to yearning, and yearning leads to this relationship that builds lifelong bonds. It's that kind of relationship with Jesus that Paul is telling us, hey, Christian, it's time to grow. And I want you to pay attention and grow in your knowledge of God. It's more than just reciting Bible verses. It's actually being able to give testimony. If you'll come back with me to Colossians chapter 1, verse number 10. The Bible says, And we pray this in order that you might live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, colon, bearing fruit in every good work, comma, growing in the knowledge of God, comma and being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience here's the principle living a life pleasing to jesus means that we must be willing to grow from our troubles that are caused by being a christian those troubles are going to come. Paul says they're going to come. Jesus tells us that they're going to come. And we need to be strengthened because we're in need of strength when we are weaker than the situation that we're walking into. In the original language, this is the only time the word strengthened is used in the New Testament. It literally means to make strong, to enable, to confirm. It's the art of growing. It's the art of getting stronger. It's not... It's not the bodybuilder, it's the act of becoming the bodybuilder. It's not Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's the guy who became Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's that workout time. Paul knows that we are going to face opposition for knowing Jesus, and that's where this strength is needed. Your Christian experience with God is your strength training that fortifies us against the temptations that Satan brings to us. It helps us grow in our ability to do our duty and still hold on to our integrity. It helps us to stand up to culture. It helps us to be men and women of biblical morals, not just our morals, not the world's morals, but biblical morals. We will be tested, but with Jesus as the author of our strength, we are not alone. Paul says that we need to be strengthened so that you may have great endurance and patience. How much patience do we need to have in our world with other people who still are, we're waiting for them to come to Christ? 
How much patience? How many times have we heard a mother say, I've been praying for my son for 40 years? That's patience. How much endurance do we need to have to be able to manage ourselves in a world that cannot stand what Christians stand for? We need this endurance because this opposition to our faith will not stop. It's not going anywhere. It's always going to be there. There's people who are looking at the sacrifices that we make for the church and we make for Jesus and they're laughing at us. You go to church every Sunday, you come here and culture says, why, why are you warping your mind with that message of Christ? Maybe, maybe you come here every Thursday for a meal and a message and people say, why are, you, why are you there supporting an intolerant religion? You stand up and you watch your language at places that you go and you live a life full of Christ and you want to help others know God and grow in their relationship and this culture wags its unholy finger at you. We need strength. And we need endurance. Nearly by definition, a Christian is someone who is out of step with our culture. If you turn back two books with me, just to the book of Ephesians, you don't have to turn there, I'll read this to you, but just two books, it's in chapter 6 of Ephesians. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he's very much about the very same topic that we're talking about here. But Paul goes into a little bit more details when he tells this church to put on what? The whole armor of God, right? Ephesians 6, starting in verse number 11, Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. See, when you left to come to church this morning, somebody saw you. Maybe it was your neighbors. Maybe it was somebody down the road. They saw you. When you go back, somebody sees you. They know you were here. When they see you on Monday, they're looking. Does that match with Sunday? Because that's an example that they see. When your faith is showing, the opposition is going to become fiercer. When this world sees your faith, it is going to become, it's going to come stronger at you. This is the continued prayer of Paul to the church in Colossae, and through God's inspired word, this is his prayer to us. And with all these issues that we face, for being a brother in Christ, I am so glad that we don't have to go through all of this alone. 
I'm so thankful that we are walking with a winner, that we are walking with the creator of all things, with the alpha and the omega, and with the beginning and the end, the one who separates the wheat from the chaff. I am astonished that I am so loved by God that he isn't leaving me here to fight alone. Read with me one more time. Colossians 1, verse 10 through 12 so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, comma, and verse number 12, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Here's the final principle. Living a life pleasing to Jesus means that we must joyfully be giving thanks for all that we have. The first reason that Paul mentions that we need to give thanks is because we as Christians are sharing in the inheritance. We are adopted sons into the body of Christ. We will spend eternity with Jesus in a place that he has gone to prepare for us, a place where there is no more pain, where there is no more suffering, there is no more clouds. And we are to joyfully give thanks. Just look at what we've been given from these verses that we're studying this morning. God gave us the commission and the command and the skills to go out and bear fruit. We can't save others, but we can be a conduit for the Holy Spirit to save other people. And for that, I am joyfully thankful. We've also been given the ability to have a personal relationship with Jesus, more than simply reading about him from history, to have a relationship with him so that we could tell other people exactly what God has done for us. We can call upon his name in our time of sorrow, and we know he's going to listen. And we could praise him for his gratefulness because we could see his hand answering our prayers. And for that, I am joyfully thankful. We've been offered strength in everything that it takes to oppose this culture and this world that is all but demanding an ungodly lifestyle be inserted into hearts where God's holiness lives. And we can grow stronger than we are right now. And if we look at ourselves and we say we struggle in this world, and we struggle with a world that is struggling with its faith, God is there, and for that, I am joyfully thankful. Paul is asking the church in Colossae to thank the Father joyfully, and in doing so, he's telling us we should be thankful to God for everything that we have. I am thankful right now that Pastor Jim is in good hands and that there is a surgery tomorrow of people who are total strangers to him. And that every morning he is up praying with total strangers in his room. Planting seeds, bearing fruit, strengthening others, standing up. When we pray, we should be joyfully thanking God for something. We should be thanking God joyfully for the food that we, that we have, the meal that we, that we receive and joyfully thanking God for, for this day, joyfully thanking Him for our friends, for our family, for our neighbors. We should joyfully be thanking God for allowing us to be used to bear fruit. 
We should joyfully be thanking Him for this wonderful place to come and worship. We should joyfully be thanking God for sending His Son to us. And we should joyfully be thanking Him for going to the cross for total strangers. And we should joyfully be thanking Him for our salvation and joyfully be thanking God for the eternity that we will be able to share with Him in heaven.